Amen. It is a, uh, a joy to worship with you all, and I want to say hello this morning to those who are not able to be with us, those who are watching at home. Um, it's a special thing to be able to, to worship and to focus on the Lord. And I know it's Christmas and a lot of these songs are familiar, but Christ came. He did. He really did. And he came so that he could live, so that he could die, so that he could rise again, so that we could know God. And that is something worth celebrating, not just at Christmas, but all year round. And so it's a joy to be with you today, to celebrate that today. And I hope that as we think about Christ, whether at home or whether here, that our hearts would be turned towards him in worship. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll begin our time in God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pause before we open your word, and we pause to ask for your help. We confess that we need you to teach us your rules, to show us your statutes, to make your way known to us. Lord, we need you to illuminate the truth and to help us to understand. Lord, we need you to help us respond in obedience and faith. So God, we ask that today as we take time in your word that you would do your work and that you would move us towards worship and make us more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. The Christmas season is signaled by many different things. I think I have this off. Bryce, I'll turn that on. Sorry. The Christmas season signaled by a lot of different things, things we do every year, um, a lot of traditions. I know for me, as soon as the weather gets cold, it starts feeling like Christmas, which is why in Kansas sometimes it doesn't feel like Christmas, because sometimes it's 60 degrees. Um, but the cold weather, maybe certain foods that you eat at this time of year, being with family, the different traditions, the giving of gifts, all of those things. But an especially unique feature of this season, for me at least, is always the songs. And not just the, the corny American pop songs. I get tired of those, to be honest. But it's the hymns. Um, we sang several of them this morning. It's the Christmas carols that marvel at the wonder that God, who made earth and heaven of naught, out of nothing, as we sang earlier, that he came down and took on flesh. In fact, one of my favorite songs we sing every Christmas, we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one verse says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You know, at dinner earlier this week, I, I was talking about this song with my kids, and we were talking through the words, because there's some big words there, and especially if you're eight, you might not know uh, what incarnate deity means, but now you do, right? Do you remember? Okay, good. So we were talking about this song, and especially about that word, at the end of that verse, the word Emmanuel. This word Emmanuel comes from Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. If you've read the book of Isaiah, you'll remember that Judah was facing a grave crisis. There was a massive military threat that was coming upon them. And God spoke through Isaiah and gave them a promise, a promise that a child would be born. And this child would be symbolic of God's presence with them. And it was a promise of rescue and deliverance. But those words of Isaiah find a greater fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us, and this is a precious gift. It's a marvelous blessing. There is nothing in the universe that is more valuable, nothing in the universe that is more more, uh, glorious, of, of more precious worth than God himself. There's nothing greater, which means the greatest gift that God could give to us is to give us himself, and he has and what I want to do is consider this gift. I want to, maybe as you would at Christmas time, to unwrap it, as it were, to examine it carefully, to make sure that we understand exactly what it is that God has done for us by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. So we're going to sort of zoom out and try to take in the whole story of Scripture this morning. And I want to offer you five observations on this theme, the theme of God's Presence. What does it mean for God to be with us? Five observations on that. And the first takes us, as we do so regularly, takes us back to the beginning. The first thing we need to understand about the presence of God is that this blessing, the blessing of God's presence, was lost because of sin. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that, that this is something that happened as a consequence of sin. God's presence was removed You see, God had always intended to dwell with his people. That was the plan from day one, that he would be with them. But because of Adam's sin, Adam and his wife were driven from the garden. The garden was the place where God had once walked with them, talked with them, fellowshiped with them, that sacred place. But Genesis 3 tells us, verse 23 and 24, that the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin brings separation. It's because of sin that the presence of God has been lost. Adam and Eve forfeited that blessing of being with God, walking with him Because of their rebellion and the physical distance that they experienced that day as they were driven out, sent out of the garden, that was a result of this new spiritual distance that had been created by their sin. And it's not just Adam and Eve. Colossians 1.21 describes those who are apart from Christ as being alienated from God. Those who are still lost, those who are still in their sins, in our natural condition, are alienated from God from God. Proverbs 15:29 says the Lord is far from the wicked. 
And the bad news is that according to God's perfect holiness, that's all of us. We are all wicked. We're all sinful. And not only are we far off from God because of our sin, but this distance from God is deadly. It ends in judgment. Psalm 73, 27 says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. This is the bad news that precedes the good news of the coming of Jesus. The source of true joy, the source of life, the most precious blessing that we could ever receive is, from our perspective, hopelessly out of reach because of our sin. But in God's grace, he has not left us there. And as scripture unfolds, we see God working to restore what was lost in the garden. So yes, the blessing of God's presence was lost because of sin. But God didn't leave it there. The blessing of God's presence, as we continue to read the story, was also periodically experienced in the Old Testament. The second observation, as we read the Old Testament, we see God's presence. God extended his grace to Abraham. He promised to bless him, that he would be Abraham's God, and that Abraham and his descendants, that they would be his people. As Moses instructed this young nation, Israel, God spoke through Moses in Exodus 25, verse 8, and said this, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Do you catch that? Let them make me a sanctuary for what reason? So that I may dwell in their midst. This is what God is doing. He's restoring something that has been lost. These people would experience, although in a limited sense, the presence of God in their midst. This sanctuary that we find the, the building plans for in Exodus, the tabernacle, would be the new place where God's presence would be manifested in the middle of the camp. What had been lost because of sin would once again be experienced, but it would be in a limited sense because only the high priest would be allowed to enter into the, the central chamber of this tent. And he would only be allowed to go in once a year. There was still a separation. The curtain of the most holy place separated the people from God. But God's presence was manifest there. And the people knew that God was with them. He was in their midst. In Exodus 29, 43 through 46, God says, There, speaking of this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, He says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is why I brought you out of Egypt, God says, so that I might dwell among you. Following the consecration of this tabernacle, there's an incredible scene that takes place in Exodus chapter 40. They've, they've just finished construction. They've dedicated this sacred space. And it says in verse 34 of chapter 40, then the cloud, this is the, the pillar of cloud that's been leading them. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Imagine being there on that day. 
you are witnessing God's presence being manifested in the middle of the camp. They knew that God was with them. Later, when Solomon would finish building the temple in Jerusalem, this was many years later, we see a very similar scene as the glory of God again filled that house of worship and all the people saw the presence of God being manifest in their midst. Second Chronicles chapter 7 tells us about this. In verse 1 through 3, it says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just like what happened with the tabernacle. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They worshiped God because he was doing what he had promised. He was dwelling among them. And the people recognized this as proof of his goodness, his faithfulness, his steadfast love. But sadly, this amazing blessing didn't last. Their ongoing sin kept this experience of God's presence in their midst, it kept it from being a permanent one. Centuries of wicked idolatry eventually brought them to the point where God could not tolerate their sin any longer. And what God did was withdrew from his people, and he brought judgment upon them. He gave them over to be conquered and taken into exile by pagan nations. When we read through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees a vision. And in this vision, vision, he sees something very tragic. And it's the gradual departure of the glory of God from the temple. What we see in the tabernacle, what we see in the temple, it gradually fades away. Chapters 8 through 11 of Ezekiel show us that the glory of God is at first residing in the most holy place, but then it moves to the front door of the temple. And then later leaves to the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. And then eventually departs the city altogether to the Mount of Olives. Sin had once again caused a separation, a separation between God and his people. And he could not dwell among them because of this wickedness, because of their idolatry. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He says, listen, the reason you're being conquered by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, it's not because God lacks the power. No. Isaiah gives the reason. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin brings separation from God. So the blessing of God's presence was experienced in the Old Testament because of God's grace. But it was limited and it was not a permanent feature. However, the same prophets who announced this judgment, who condemned sin, they also offered hope. A third observation this morning is that the blessing of God's presence is promised to us as part of a future restoration. The blessing of God's presence is promised as part of a future restoration. Yes, God had sent his people into exile. Yes, there were consequences because of their idolatry. There was judgment. But God promised to restore them. 
And this restoration would include not just a material restoration, bringing them back into the land, bringing them back into prosperity. It included more than that, a spiritual restoration of a right relationship between them and their God. And what's amazing is this spiritual restoration promised to Israel would overflow to include the Gentiles, people like us. And while all the prophets speak of this restoration in some way, it's in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that we find the explicit promise of the new covenant, unpacked in detail. I want you to listen. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's speaking of a future restoration. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. See, the problem was their sin separated them from God. God says, I will cleanse it. The problem was their hearts ran after idols and did not want to obey God. God says, I'll give you a new heart. The problem was that they were separated, and God says, I will dwell with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verse 26 and 28, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. It will not be lost again. God would not leave again. He says, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Listen, the promise of God is that this presence, this this manifestation of his presence was going to be restored, and he wouldn't leave again. It would be an eternal reality. God's presence had departed the temple. The glory of Israel had departed because of sin in Ezekiel's day. But this would be restored because God's grace is greater than our sin. Because his sovereign plan to bring about redemption is greater than the weakness of our faith. So God would deal with their sin. The very thing causing the separation, he would cleanse them, place his spirit within them, and dwell in their midst. And you might ask, how? How is this promise going to be fulfilled? How can sins be cleansed? How can the barrier between God and man be removed? How can God's presence be restored? It's a good question. The means by which this blessing would come about would be the Messiah. It would come through one who was promised. This brings us to our fourth observation this morning. The blessing of God's presence is provided through Jesus Jesus is the one who brings this blessing to us. Although we have distanced ourselves from God because of our sin, in Christ, in the incarnation, God has drawn near to us. Jesus is the promised Messiah who brings the fulfillment of all of these promises. He brings the blessing of God's presence to his people. That's why Matthew quotes Isaiah 
He quotes the angel who's quoting Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. God in human flesh who has drawn near to dwell among us and to save us from our sins. And although he looked like many, or looked too many like any other baby, Isaiah 53 says there's nothing special about what he looked like. But scripture tells us that there was much more to Jesus than met the eye. You know, Matthew and and Luke tell us the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. They tell us the story, sort of Jesus' origin story. But John, when he talks about the origin story of Jesus, he goes further back than the birth of the Messiah. He goes back to the beginning to show that Jesus didn't have a beginning. And John 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When everything started, Jesus was already there. And he had always been there because he is God. John 1.14 says, this word, this eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do those words dwelling among us and seeing the glory of God, does that ring a bell? Does it remind you of the presence of God dwelling among his people, the glory being manifested in the tent of meeting. It's meant to. That word for dwelling literally has the idea of taking up residence in a tent. Jesus tabernacled, as it were, among us. Later, Jesus would explicitly claim to be the true temple, the place where God's presence was manifested, the center of true worship. And the result of Jesus coming to dwell among us is salvation. He came to deal with our sin, to remove the barrier, to solve the problem that kept us separated from God. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Yes, Jesus is God come to dwell among us, and he comes with a mission, a mission to reconcile sinful man with holy God, and he does it through the cross by the shedding of his blood. You see, it's only once we are reconciled to God that we will be able to enjoy the presence of God as a blessing. Think about this. To be in the presence of God if you are still in your sins. Think about that. That would not be a blessing, would it? It'd be absolutely terrifying. Prophet Isaiah, when he beholds the presence of God, as he's ushered into the throne room in a vision, cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. He knows that he is a sinful man, a man of unclean lips, and that he dwells among a people who are the same way. If you are not reconciled to God, if you are not cleansed of your sins, if you've not been forgiven and made new and reconciled with God, you don't want to be in the presence of God. It would be absolutely terrifying. But Jesus comes to deal with our sin, to cleanse us so that we are reconciled to God, so that we can enter into his presence and enjoy it as a great gift and as a blessing. You see, Jesus dealt with the offense of our sin at the cross by taking our place. 
On the cross, Jesus experienced the rejection of the Father. He experienced abandonment from God so that we could be reconciled. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, it tells us that at the ninth hour, as Jesus hung on the cross, he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? The most awful curse in the world is to be forsaken by God. That is the ultimate consequence of sin. To be forsaken by God. And that's what Jesus experienced. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath for us. Jesus was condemned. Why? So that you and I could be brought near. So that you and I could be accepted. So that you and I could enter into the presence of God with joy. To, ex- to receive his love with no fear of judgment. With no barrier because of our sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's our sinful state. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, there's an amazing thing that happened when Jesus died. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. There's something that happened in the temple. In the temple, there was a massive curtain. It was like 30 feet tall. So imagine going up about to a little bit further past this roof. And it was thick, several inches thick. This isn't some thin, sheer, you know, type drapery. It was heavy duty. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. It was a divine act signifying that the way to God was now open. The barrier between sinful man and holy God was now removed. We can now have access to the presence of God. It's no longer a privilege just for the high priest once a year. No, Jesus, as the ultimate high priest, has gone in and blown open the doors, and he summons all who believe to come in to the presence of God. Jesus is God with us, but Jesus is also the one who makes it possible for us to be with God. You might say, okay, I understand that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he was here. He was among us. But he's not here now. He ascended into heaven. So what does the presence of God look like today? Although Jesus is not physically present with us anymore, he has not left us alone. In John chapter 14, verse 16, he tells his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, there's that word of dwelling, of tabernacling. And Jesus says the Spirit is going to come. He'll be with you. 
He will dwell with you. He will be in you. The New Testament tells us that the Spirit of Christ makes his home in us. The presence of God is here. God is here today with us, in us, all who believe. 1 Corinthians refers to both individual believers and to the collective church as a temple for the Holy Spirit. God is here and he is actively involved in every detail of our lives as believers. He is constantly at work on our behalf and he shows his power in us and through us. God is with us. We enjoy as believers his presence today. The Spirit comforts us. Maybe you've experienced that. That's God. He helps us. He guides us. He convicts us of sin. The Spirit gives us strength. The Spirit reveals the truth of Scripture. The Spirit gives us assurance of our salvation. The Spirit unites us with other believers. The Spirit produces the fruit of good works in us. The Spirit bestows spiritual gifts upon us. And the Spirit makes us more like Jesus every day. And this gift of the Holy Spirit that all believers enjoy, it's not just a blessing now, although it is an immense blessing. It's also, according to Scripture, a down payment, a guarantee of something that is going to come in the future. Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The fact that, that we who believe in Christ experience the present ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, that is proof to us that there is a future inheritance coming. That's a down payment, the first portion of all that Christ has purchased for us with his blood. So no longer do we wait outside the temple. God has made us into a temple for his spirit through the sanctifying work of Christ. And the presence of his spirit is a guarantee that one day, we will enter fully, even physically, into the literal presence of the glory of God. So the blessing of God's presence is brought to us through Jesus. A fifth and final observation is this, and we'll be brief at this point. The blessing of God's presence will be enjoyed by all believers in the new creation. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, all the way to the end of the story. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Following the great day of the Lord, following the judgment that is poured out on the earth, following the establishment of God's kingdom and power, John sees this in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people." And God himself will be with them as their God. 
Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. For those who know Christ, this is our destination. That's where we are headed. This is our hope. This is our future. This is our inheritance. We who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ will get to experience the unspeakable joy of being in God's presence for eternity. There will be no more loss, no more sin, no more separation, no more sorrow. God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him in a perfect world where all things are made new. That's the end of the story. And it's an amazing blessing. It's a gift. That experience, that future is impossible if Jesus doesn't come. If Jesus doesn't draw near to us, to dwell among us, if there is no Emmanuel, there is no hope for people like you and me who are born in sin. And I need to say this, if, if you're here this morning and you have never repented of your sins and embraced Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then here's the hard truth. God is not with you. God is not in you. And according to what Scripture teaches, you are still far from him. You're actually separated from him by your sins. But today, all of that can change if you will recognize your need, recognize your guilt before a perfectly holy God, recognize your absolute inability to tear the curtain by yourself, to cleanse yourself, to draw near to God in your own strength. Only Christ can do that for you. Only Christ can make you acceptable. Only Christ can bring you into the presence of God. Only Christ can give you forgiveness and cleansing and hope for a future. So if you will come to him today, if you will draw near to him in humble faith, he will cleanse you. And today you will experience something new that you have never experienced before. The blessing of God's presence for the very first time as his spirit comes to dwell with you. Believers, those of us who know these things and believe these things, I want you to think about this today as we reflect on this truth, this theme of God with us. Consider that God desires to dwell with his people. That is his heart. That is his desire. That is what he wants. And he wants it badly enough to send his only son to come and suffer and die on a cross. The greatest sacrifice. He wants to be with you. So what we must ask ourselves is, do we want to be with him? What are the desires in our hearts? What are the longings that we have? Where do we place our hope? What is most precious to us? Do you want to experience God's presence in your daily life as you commune with him in prayer and scripture? Do you want to be in God's presence as the saints gather for corporate worship on Sunday? Do you long for that? 
Do you long furthermore for heaven to see Christ face to face, to behold the very glory of God? Do you desire and long for that? Because you should. Friends, this is what we need. We need God. We need to be with him. We need him to be with us. And we need this more than we need a stable economy. We need this more than we need a culture that is sympathetic to the Christian worldview. We need God's presence more than we need a happy and fulfilling marriage. More than you need a good job. More than you need physical health. More than you even need meaningful friendships or a relaxing vacation, more than you need stuff, more than you need money, more than you need people's approval or respect or admiration or acceptance. You need God, period. And I need God. We need a relationship with him. We need to be with him. We need him to be with us. We need his presence. God knows that and acted accordingly in love and grace and mercy, drawing near to us to reconcile us to himself. Do we believe that? Do we believe God is our greatest need to know him? To experience his presence now in a spiritual sense and one day in the future face to face. God has given us himself. Jesus is Emmanuel. And so when we think about Christmas, we think about the incarnation, the the story of God taking on flesh. It's a story of God making a way for us to enjoy his presence once again. So will this gift be unwrapped and sort of set aside by us? Or will we delight in it? Will the gift of God himself be your greatest treasure? It's convicting, isn't it? It is for me. But this, based on what Scripture says, is true. And it's what we need, and God has provided it through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have done what we could not do in solving the great separation caused by our sin. Lord Jesus, we worship and glorify you today and praise you for what you did in drawing near to save us, to restore us to relationship with you so that we could enjoy the great blessing of your presence. Lord, we marvel at the great cost as you set aside your glory in heaven and you humbled yourself to take on human flesh and you became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That is the greatest sacrifice the world could ever know. Lord, we we ask for your help today that you would increase our faith. Help us to believe that knowing you and being in your presence, communing with you is our greatest need. Help us, Lord, to trust in your promises and to believe because sometimes we don't feel that you are with us. But Lord, your word tells us you are. So Lord, increase our awareness of this truth. Make us sensitive to your presence. And Lord, we pray that you would expand our experience. Give us an increased experience of your presence, your power, your comfort, your guidance, your conviction, the assurance that you give. All of that. We need your ministry. We need the ministry of the Spirit. And Lord, I pray for some today who may 
not be able to experience your presence because they don't know you at all. They may know about you, but they don't have a right relationship with you. I pray that today you would convict them and draw them to yourself, save them, make your home in them. And Lord, I pray for believers here today, perhaps some who are unable to enjoy your presence because there is sin that is undealt with. I pray, God, that you would bring about repentance in us, we who believe that we would lay aside the sin that chokes off our ability to enjoy and experience your presence. Bring about repentance and revival among us. Lord, make us a people who are highly aware that you are with us, who rejoice in your nearness, who rely on your power. Lord, for all of this, for for the, the truth that you've shown us today, for the gifts that you've given through your Son and by your Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for this great and precious gift. There's no greater thing you could have ever given us than to give us yourself, and you have. For that, we honor and worship you and declare Worthy are you, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. And we offer it to you the best we can today. Amen.